0: From the newsroom of the Washington Post. Hi, Kevin. This is Gabrielle Kelly at the Washington Post. How are you? Hey there. It's Simon. So hey, it's
1: Dave Ferrand the Post. Have you got a second talk?
0: This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, March 27th. Today, the enduring trauma of gun violence. Understanding Russian interference in US elections, and a major shift in Apple's business model. A little more than a year after the school shooting in Parkland, Florida, two teenagers who survived the shooting have taken their own lives. This happened in the past week or so. And then on Monday, Jeremy Richmond, the father of a Sandy Hook victim, was also found dead, apparently by suicide. gun safety groups founded in the wake of some of the country's worst mass shootings, they're shifting their focus from gun control to suicide prevention.
2: Everytown for Gun Safety has started a campaign to try to prevent people from dying by suicide.
0: Katie Zezma is a national reporter for The Post, and she covers gun reform groups
2: like Everytown. There has been very, very little action federally. On gun control. There really has been very, very small things. There was a background check bill that failed in the wake of Sandy Hook, and it's really kind of been an intractable issue since then. So these groups are now focusing on state levels. For the last couple of years, they've been going state by state and trying to enact background check legislation and legislation that would make it easier to take guns away from people convicted of domestic abuse. They've also shifted toward attempting to prevent people from dying by suicide, which, you know, is a huge number of people who die by suicide each year. Many more people die by suicide than in actual mass shooting. Yes, absolutely. Tens of thousands of people a year die by suicide as opposed to, you know, for the most part, a few hundred each year from, from mass shootings. So it really is a huge cause of death. And about half of the people who die by suicide die by a gun. So what they're doing is trying to raise awareness of what are called red flag laws in states. And these laws allow a loved one or a law enforcement officer to basically petition a judge and say, this person is a danger to him or herself or to others, and he or she should temporarily have their guns taken away. Um, And they and proponents of these laws say that they can potentially help prevent people from dying by suicide because they will take the gun away from them. According to every town, if there is not access to a gun, it would it, it there's a, a large potential that it could potentially stop the suicide.
3: Suicide has always been a focus of our organization, but um, we've recently started pointing our data toward addressing this issue and in particular because red flag laws have become something that Lawmakers on both sides of the aisle have begun championing, particularly since Parkland.
0: Katie talked about this new focus with Shannon Watts, the founder of Moms Demand Action, one of the groups affiliated with Everytown.
3: We've been working on this campaign now for about a year. But certainly the horrific recent suicides um, have brought attention to this issue. I think it's more important now than ever to have this discussion.
0: To what extent is this shift a response to the fact that suicide is a huge problem? And to what extent is it because they're just really frustrated with the ways in which they can't get any action
2: or legislation on gun control? It's both. Suicide is a huge problem. It's a major problem in this country, and it's something that they want to work very hard to try to combat. They say that, yes, you can prevent suicide if you take the gun away from someone, if you take the, the mechanism away from someone. But also, you know, gun control on Capitol Hill has just been intractable. It has been incredibly difficult to get anything passed. It's just been, you know, difficult, if not impossible, to get anything through the entire Senate and to the death of President Trump, who is is unlikely to sign any gun control legislation. Katie Zesma is a national reporter for The Post.
0: During Katie's reporting, she found out that Shannon had a personal connection to Jeremy Richmond, the Sandy Hook father who recently died by suicide.
3: I met Jeremy Richmond just after the horrific tragedy at Sandy Hook.
0: Richmond, it turned out, had turned into an activist in the years after Sandy Hook. He was a neuroscientist who studied the brain and violence.
3: He was channeling his grief into activism, and I was a new activist, I had never been involved. In politics before, but as the mom of I from Indiana, I was just outraged by the Sandy Hook school shooting. And as a result, he and I started traveling in the same circles and the aftershocks of that death are definitely reverberating throughout the community and uh, making people feel lost again. Um, this is a community that has been through tremendous grief and struggle and I'm sure that that they're all wondering, you know, what does this mean?
1: One thing that we discovered doing our reporting on this is there's not a lot of really good research on the link between trauma and suicide. In fact, suicide in general is a subject that the experts tell us is way under-researched, underfunded. There are 47,000 people a year in America by last count who take their own lives. It's a huge number. That number has been going up, going up much faster than the rate of population growth. It was about 29,000 back in 1999. So what's happening? What's, What's causing this? What's driving this? I'm Joel Achenbach. I'm a science reporter for The Washington Post.
0: Joel has been reporting this week on the science of suicide.
1: The scientists, the researchers who look at this, they really don't have a good answer other than that clearly this is a public health crisis. We need to pay attention to it. And just at a really basic level, if you know someone who is vulnerable, who is in pain, who's been traumatized, make sure that person gets help. If you yourself are feeling vulnerable. There's help out there. Take action. Don't don't just assume everything is going to be okay.
0: So we don't know exactly what was going on in any of these three cases, but the mother of one of these people, a a woman who would graduated from Parkland, her mom had said that she had suffered from survivor's guilt and from PTSD. So you say that we don't know if there is a link between trauma and suicide, but what do we know?
1: So, I'll tell you exactly what one of our sources said, which is that if you have a really bad traumatic experience as a child or in your developmental years, that can be linked to bad outcomes statistically, not just suicide, but you know, drug abuse, things like that. But keep in mind, most people who have survived these traumatic incidents, whether it's a, a mass shooting at a school... Or it could be an earthquake, a natural disaster, 9-11. Most people do not go on. I mean, the vast, vast majority do not go on to hurt themselves. So the causality is something that we approach carefully. I do think that trauma doesn't just end on a schedule. It doesn't abate steadily week to week or month to month or even after a year. So one of the people we've interviewed who studies this says – that in some ways the second year after a traumatic event can be worse Hmm. than the first year. Because the first year you have everyone checking on you.
0: How are you? How are you feeling? But then people start to forget or it starts to fade into the background and that concern and support is less intense as time goes on. Exactly. It strikes me that for a lot of the families and friends and survivors in the Parkland and Sandy Hook shootings, there wasn't just the initial trauma of the shooting, but also the the ways that it got politicized afterward, the ways that a lot of these families were attacked or maligned or that the deaths of their family members became a political issue. Is there any concern that that continues the trauma for these families?
1: You can only imagine that the Sandy Hook parents had to endure... This insane attack on whether or not the whole thing was faked that was promulgated by Alex Jones and other conspiracy theorists, which is really one of the uglier chapters in recent American history that these parents had to go through that, that could not have helped. And no doubt the intense media scrutiny affected how people emerge from these traumas. But I think that many of them, and this is an interesting thing that I hadn't really known until my colleague William Wan did an interview yesterday with someone who said, you know, many people who go through these terrible events actually grow stronger after them. They find more purpose in their lives, that there is a post-traumatic growth effect. The experts tell us that people should not expect that someone who's gone through a traumatic event will wind up depressed or vulnerable to self-harm necessarily. It's not a direct causation or correlation. In fact, to the contrary, people often emerge from these terrible, terrible events as stronger individuals have more of a sense of purpose, they fully recover. Even if they're never beyond the event, it's always with them. It always changes them. It doesn't mean that it's going to wreck their lives or drive them to some kind of self-harm. Now, every person is different. We have different vulnerabilities. We have different psychological makeups. When it comes to self-harm, there are certain risk factors growing up in poverty, growing up in a family where there's a history of suicide, drug abuse. There's a lot of factors that go into these things. And so this is a story where it's important to understand it's these are individual tragedies. Each one has its own customized kind of equation of you know, what went into it. And It's not just a statistic, although the statistic is a really big one, 47,000 Americans. 40,000 people a year in the U.S. is a really big number. But each case is its own unique tragedy.
0: So one of the experts that you talked to described this as
3: almost like the flu. If you've ever lived in a town that's had a flu outbreak, um, and I'm thinking of a small town that I lived in had a very severe one.
0: This is Dr. April Foreman. She's a clinician and she's on the board of the American Association of Suicidology.
3: Not everyone got the flu. Of everyone who did get the flu, some had some mild flu and got over it, some it was more severe. Of the folks who were more severe, only a percentage had to be hospitalized. Of the people who were hospitalized, only a few people got extremely ill or died. And the folks who got extremely ill or who died had other things going on, like they were elderly or their immune system was compromised. or They had other complicating factors
0: in the case of a traumatic event, if you already have other issues going on in your life or other traumas in your past, that this can have even more of a dramatic effect on you and your mental health going forward, which I just thought was a really interesting analogy for how this works.
1: I think it's important to recognize people may have multiple risk factors. And one of them that one of our sources mentioned is simply being a teenager a young adult going from you know adolescence into young adulthood there's tremendous transitions in that it's just a risk factor trying to navigate that world to begin with and so having this additional trauma thrown into it can create for some people a kind of a internal recipe for disaster i guess and i think people need to be sensitive to all the different kinds of factors that may put them at risk or make them vulnerable to some kind of self-harm.
0: Joel Achenbach is a science reporter for The Post. If you or someone you know needs help, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-TALK. You can also text a crisis counselor by messaging the crisis text line at (music) 741-741. Attorney General William Barr announced on Sunday that Robert Mueller did not find sufficient evidence of coordination between the Trump campaign and Russia. That's being celebrated at the White House. And in Russia.
4: The result of the Mueller investigation has been received with a lot of I told you so's in Russia.
0: That's Anton Troyanovsky, Moscow bureau chief for The Post.
4: In a way, there's a lot of echoes of what you hear in Fox News in the United States, here on Russian television. One prominent Russian politician said, after this, you'd have to be an idiot to trust the conspiracy theorists, as he put it, who were reporting on indications of connections between the Trump campaign and Russia.
0: But it's not a conspiracy theory. Russia did interfere.
4: We're seeing the Russians, especially in the government-controlled media, try to spin this as also a way to say, look, you can't trust any of this. There was obviously no interference, period.
0: That all happened, and we know that. Shane Harris covers intelligence and national security
5: for The Post. Mueller was put in place. There was an investigation that he inherited because Russia attacked us. And the question of what Trump was doing with that was a central question if he was doing anything. But it's the attack that got this all started. And we're forgetting that, I think.
0: So obviously, we don't actually know what is in the Mueller report. But what I think is getting lost here is that there actually was Russian interference in the 2016 election and people are forgetting about that. What do we know about what happened from Russia?
5: Well, what we know, we actually know in great detail, thanks to Robert Mueller, who issued a number of indictments that go into great detail about two prongs that the Russians engaged in this interference campaign in 2016. The first set of indictments was against 13 individuals who worked at a place called the Internet Research Agency, which is a troll farm. And their job was to go on Facebook and other social media platforms and create divisive advertising, misleading information, fake news stories, actual fake news, in order to persuade people uh, against a particular candidate, usually Hillary Clinton, in order to rile people up, to divide them. And they were trying to exacerbate in many cases, Mueller found existing political divisions on hot button issues. And then there was another indictment against 12 officers for an agency in Russia called the GRU, which is its military intelligence agency. That is the organization that hacked into the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, that hacked into the Hillary Clinton campaign and stole emails and weaponized them by giving them to other organizations that could then you know, leak them at very inopportune moments and in selective ways.
0: And what do we know about what the motivation was
5: of the folks behind these attacks? What the intelligence community has said with one voice is that there were a couple of goals that the Russians had. And we should be clear, too, that this is an effort directed... The intelligence agencies believe by Vladimir Putin. He gives the order and then his soldiers kind of go out on the march and do these many things that they've done. The goal was one, to undermine the American public's confidence and faith in our election process as fair, as transparent – Democracy as even a legitimate institution, essentially saying it's corrupt, it's flawed, just like everybody else, you're no better than anyone else, including Russia. But there was a specific aim, too, which was to, on the one hand, try and damage the candidacy of Hillary Clinton by leaking unflattering, problematic information about her at strategic moments, and also towards the end of the campaign to do things to try to boost the chances of Donald Trump to help him. It's pretty clear that the Russians did not think Donald Trump was going to win, but they seem to have wanted to try to boost him up and hurt Hillary Clinton in the process, thinking that she would then come in as a weakened president.
0: So the Russian interference that happened in 2016, could it have been prevented? And is there talk within the intelligence community about how they're going to prevent that from happening again?
5: To the first question, could it have been prevented? It, it's hard to say because the Russians on the one hand, when they were hacking into computers at the DNC and the Clinton campaign, I mean, they took the advantage of, you know, frankly, people's naivete and carelessness when it comes to computer security. We're all vulnerable to being hacking. The, the same campaign that actually stole emails from the DNC actually tried to hack my emails once. Um, really? So, yeah. Yeah. I got the same spear phishing kind of email that John Podesta got and other journalists got it too. Now, in my case, I knew what it was but I mean I write about this stuff and I'm kind of primed to look at something and be suspicious when it comes in. If you're running a presidential campaign, you got a lot of other things going on. You you kind of make an easy target and the Russians prove that was the case. So it's not clear that the hacking couldn't have happened. However – there are things I think that the Obama administration would acknowledge they might have done, which is one, they could have spoken up sooner about the fact that they knew Russia was behind this. They waited until October of 2016 to come out and say, we think Russia is involved in this. Reporters on this beat knew as early as you know the summer of 2016 that Russia was believed to be behind it.
4: Based on uniform intelligence assessments, the Russians were responsible for hacking the DNC and... That as a consequence, uh, it is important for us to review all elements of that and make sure that we are preventing that kind of interference uh, through cyber attacks in the future.
5: They were operating again on the presumption that Hillary Clinton was going to win and that she would come in and she would retaliate against the Russians and she would really stick it to them for what they that they did. That's all kind of past now. Now there are conversations within the intelligence community and the Homeland Security Department about how can we prepare for this going forward. But I have to say they haven't really taken shape uh, in any way that would – result in a policy. There's been no changes in law. There's been no really big public effort to educate the public about fake news and misleading information. Um, there's been some pressure applied to social media companies, but we're sort of you know, beholden to them to figure out what they want to do to police their own content. And At the top of all of this, you have a president who still doesn't actually believe that Russia hacked the election.
4: All I can do is ask the question. My. People came to me, Dan Coats came to me and some others. They said they think it's Russia. Uh, I have uh, President Putin. uh, He just said it's not Russia. I will say this. I don't see any reason why it would
3: be.
0: And is that why you're not seeing more official action from the government because even though they know that this happened, President Trump doesn't seem to be taking it seriously?
5: Yes. That's a big reason why. Because, you know, in our system, it does take for a kind of whole of government approach like this to occur. It takes the president demanding that it occur and directing that it occur. I mean, if you go back to after 9-11... President Bush came out and very forcefully said, you know, Al-Qaeda did this. Afghanistan is harboring them. We're going to figure out how they got through our security. What you have now is imagine if George Bush had come out and said, I don't know if Al-Qaeda attacked us. The Hmm. Afghanistan government says it's not harboring Osama bin Laden. I think air travel is safe. Maybe we'll get to this. You can't imagine a response to that massive event that would be so – kind of blasé and even skeptical about the event itself, what you have in 2016, many intelligence officials have said this on the record, is kind of a digital equivalent of 9-11. You have a hostile foreign power that identified weaknesses and vulnerabilities in our system and exploited them to try and hurt us. And the government is not responding forcefully in a whole way to try and ensure that that never happens again.
0: So what could we be doing right now to make sure that this doesn't happen again or doesn't happen in 2020?
5: One thing that a lot of officials and experts have said is that you've got to make it very clear to the Russian government that if they ever tried something like this again, that a retaliation would be swift and severe. They haven't really suffered, some people think, enough and haven't been deterred properly from trying something like this again. You could do a big public education campaign about you know, don't believe everything you read on the internet. You, know, you might get marginal gain from that, but the government could start speaking with a voice about these kinds of things. What would happen is if you kind of got all of the bright minds in the government together in a room and said, what could we be doing? They'd probably come up with 50 things that they could do. And then you know, the normal process would be is the government would decide, OK, these are our top priorities. They'd look at Congress. They'd say, here's what we need. And they would move forward in unison on that. That's not happening. Is there any
0: evidence that Russia or people in Russia have begun to take the same measures that, that they did in 2016?
5: Yes. Intelligence officials have testified publicly that they did see similar kinds of attempts, particularly at social media manipulation in the run-up to the midterm elections. It was not at the same intensity or same level. So I think that the what, what you hear from experts and officials, current and former on this, is that you've got to operate under the presumption that they very well could do it, certainly that they could do it again and that they will do it again and take the appropriate steps. I think one thing you're undoubtedly going to see is among the candidates running for office, at least you would hope, is much stricter and tighter computer security, locking down their communications, being very mindful of the fact that they will definitely be targets as candidates often are in these kinds of campaigns and also probably speaking out publicly against it. I would imagine too that when these kinds of misleading and manipulative ads or divisive ads start running on social media, they're going to get flagged certainly by the community of users and there's going to be enormous pressure on the companies particularly as we get into the heat of the election next year, to really step up their efforts and police this stuff.
0: Thank you so much, Shane. You're welcome. Shane Harris covers intelligence and national security for The Post. And now, one more thing.
5: Thank you. Good morning. And welcome to the Steve Jobs Theater. As you can tell, today's going to be a very different kind of event.
0: Earlier this week, in an event that felt more like an award show, Apple announced a major change to its business model.
5: For decades, Apple has been creating world-class hardware and world-class software. We've also been creating a growing collection of world-class services. And that is what today is all about.
6: There was not a single piece of hardware to touch and feel after the event.
0: This is Reed Albergotti. He writes about companies like Apple. And he was at that event where Apple unveiled its new line of services.
6: The actual services that they announced are, for the most part, not even available. We don't even know when exactly they will be available or how much they'll cost.
0: Those services included a video game subscription.
2: We call it
5: Apple Arcade.
0: A new subscription.
5: Apple News Plus.
0: A new credit card.
5: We call it Apple Card.
0: And the star of the show, their brand new streaming service.
5: Apple TV Plus.
6: This isn't going to be YouTube. This is, you know, they, they have hired real Hollywood stars.
0: Those stars include Steven Spielberg, Jennifer Aniston, Reese Witherspoon,
6: and Oprah Winfrey. The question is, how can Apple compete against companies that have been doing this for a long time? There's Netflix, which, you know, something like 90% of people who have a, any streaming service have Netflix. Um, there's Disney Plus, which is about to come out and is, is going to include a massive catalog of children's content, which is one of the most lucrative genres in video streaming. And then you have Hulu and you have Prime Video. It is a crowded field. And I think what Apple has going for it is really basically what Oprah summarized in, I think, the quote of the event.
2: They're in a billion pockets, y'all. A billion pockets.
6: (laughs) Apple has all these users all over the world who have their devices. And that gives Apple the ability to kind of nudge them toward using these services. What this event really symbolized is something that's been going on at Apple for really, you know, the better part of five years, which is the diversification of the company's business. It's not just a company that makes gadgets anymore, it's a services company. And what it really all stems from is that iPhone sales are kind of slowing. I think the truth is that Tim Cook, who is Apple's CEO and was the successor to Jobs, has, was really planning this for years. I think he's a shrewd operations guy, and he understood that the company was becoming heavily dependent on the iPhone. And I think Tim Cook understands that's not going to last forever.
0: Reed Albergati covers consumer electronics for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you want to support the show and the work that we do here, we have a special offer for you, our Post Reports listeners, a 50% discount on an unlimited digital subscription, which means you get access to our website and our apps for less than a dollar a week. Visit postreports.com slash offer. I'm Markeen Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.